Yesterday afternoon, there were in excess of 300 people or so gathered here for a memorial service for a a pastor who had died suddenly. I told Art, um, you know, of all the ways to go, that's a pretty good way. He died with his boots on. He was preparing a message when he had a massive heart attack and was taken into the presence of the Lord. Uh, And many, many people uh, came out uh, for that funeral. We hosted it here because the churchy pastors is... uh, smaller building and they wouldn't have been able to accommodate the numbers of people that wanted to come and and, uh, just do honor uh, to a man who had touched their lives in so many ways. And so it was really uh, quite a moving thing to be here. And I also wanted to thank uh, a number of uh, the members of Foothill here who extended themselves in hospitality, helping out behind the scenes in a lot of different ways. And so thank you. Just on behalf of the family, um, it was very much appreciated by them. And so, uh, so well done. Good work. Someone once said that we are most like the animals when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. And we are most like God when we forgive. Most like God when we forgive. You know, forgiveness is... Probably the defining mark of Christianity. It's what separates Christianity from really all other world religions. It is forgiveness, the means by which God restores relationships both vertically with Him and horizontally between others. The power that lies behind forgiveness is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that promotes forgiveness. It is the gospel that teaches forgiveness. It is the gospel that empowers forgiveness. When Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied the holy wrath of God against the sin of his people. And that all who will come to him by faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice are welcomed. Their sin is permanently forgiven. All of their transgressions are washed away, past, present, and future. They are forgiven. But the forgiveness that I have just spoken about is what many theologians call judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness. That is, that because of the atoning death of Jesus Christ, we no longer face God as a judge, an angry judge. We are justified, in the words of the Apostle Paul. We stand justified, welcomed into the presence of God as His child, entirely forgiven. But there's another side to forgiveness, beyond just the the judicial forgiveness of justification. There There is a forgiveness involved in Christianity that deals with the consequences of our sin when we are a child of God, that 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 reality, that awful reality 
that you and I experience, and that is that we are, we are entirely and completely forgiven and justified, perfect in the Beloved, and yet at the same time we continue to struggle with sin in our lives. And sin bears an awful consequence. It carries with it relational damage. And so there is a sense in which forgiveness is still needed ongoing basis, even for the children of God, even for those whose, whose sins have been completely and totally dealt with at the cross of Christ. There is that relational breach that still must be dealt with. This, this relational forgiveness is what is necessary to set things right with God as our Father, our Heavenly Father, and with each other in day-to-day relationships. We can call this kind of forgiveness parental forgiveness. Parental forgiveness. We have judicial forgiveness in Christ once for all complete, never to be improved upon, it could not be, and not to be detracted from in any way, it could never be. But there is this relational aspect. We call it parental forgiveness. It's the forgiveness of sanctification. It's the forgiveness of growing in our relationship with God. Parental forgiveness also finds its source and its power in the gospel. It also traces itself back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's lived out day to day. Day to day in the communion that we experience with our Heavenly Father. As we confess our sin to Him, as we we plead with Him to forgive our sin for Jesus' sake and to restore us to the joy of our salvation. This parental forgiveness, this ongoing relational forgiveness is necessary. If we are to live a fruitful Christian life, We're to grow in practical holiness. As I said, the the need for ongoing relational forgiveness also affects not just our vertical relationship with God, but it, it affects our horizontal relationship with other people. You put sinners together, and they sin against each other. Too many rats in the same cage, right? often said to young couples when we perform their their wedding ceremony that it is not if and when you offend one another in your marriage. It's just only a matter of time before it's going to happen. And so there needs to be a means and a mechanism to restore that relationship. And that that is the horizontal relational forgiveness. Not just in a marriage, but in a family. And not just in a family, but in a church. And not just in a church, in society at large. We're Christians. We are a forgiven people, and we are to live as forgiven people. I've entitled this message, A Community of the Forgiven. A Community of the Forgiven, for that's indeed what we are. We are a community of forgiven people who are to live with a daily understanding of the need of forgiveness. The subject before us this morning is prayer and parental forgiveness. 
You can open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking this morning at verses, verse 12 and then verses 14 and 15. This is not a, a sermon series on forgiveness, so there's, a, there's a, a lot to the topic of forgiveness we're just not going to be able to deal with. We're still trying to remain true and faithful as best we can here to the text of Matthew's Gospel, and in particular to the Sermon on the Mount, and in even more particular to the Lord's Prayer. We want to stay in that context. So we're going to speak about forgiveness as it arises in this context of the Lord's Prayer. But if you're looking for a more fully orbed treatment of the topic of forgiveness, and if this is something that you're kind of fuzzy on, you're not really sure how it all works, this is something you should get some clarity to. It's an important topic. And so I can recommend some resources for you for your own study, a couple of books that have been very helpful uh, to me and to many others. We have them there for you on the screen. From Forgiven to Forgiving by Jay Adams, and then a book by uh, Dr. John MacArthur called Forgiveness. So you would do well to uh, get those books, and they're not hard to read, but to get them and to read them, there's still a little over a month of summer left. So there's time to at least knock one of those off and make your summer productive. I think those books are available in the church library, and you could go and get them there. Someone uh, earlier this morning, I was talking about a book, and they said, what? what? What's a book? And I said, well, it's a, um, you can go to a museum and see one if you'd like. I've been around for a long time. Or you could come to my home or office, and you will see many of them there. Books. Anyway, let's take a look here at the background and context of the Lord's Prayer, and in particular these verses. Just kind of get a running start at this passage. We've said this over and over again, probably going to continue to say it at least uh, one more time until it's uh, been really fastened into your thinking. And that is that the Lord's Prayer here is comprised of six specific petitions. There are six of them. They are broken down nicely and evenly into three and three concerning essentially two different subjects or groupings. The first three deal with the the disciples' desire for heaven to come to earth. And so we noted back in verse 9, the first one deals with the the desire for God's name to be holy, to to be seen as holy throughout the earth. And we know that will ultimately only come when Messiah returns. That leads into the second request, and that is that Messiah's kingdom would come. And the third request is that God's will be done here upon earth as it is in heaven. So the disciples desire to see, if you'd like, heaven where it's all done perfectly to come to earth where things are quite messed up. The second grouping of requests concerned the disciples' needs in the interim period until heaven comes to earth. We noted last time there were three of those. It's, it's a desire for provision, the daily bread. It's a desire for pardon, which we're going to speak with this morning. And it's a di- desire for protection, and we'll cover that next week. These uh, requests are requests made by one who is a child of God, one whose saving relationship as a disciple to God is, is explicitly stated here 
in the repetitive use of the word Father, our Father. This familial relationship of the disciple to the God of the universe as his Father, as his heavenly Father, is an explicit way of speaking about the reality that these are the prayer requests to be voiced by one who is already a child of God. Already a child of God, received into his presence by grace through faith. Including this discussion of forgiveness... We must understand that the prayer being voiced here is the prayer of one who is already a child of God, even though it is a prayer for forgiveness. And that tells us, by the way, that this does not concern judicial forgiveness. This is not, these requests do not concern judicial forgiveness. These concern parental forgiveness. The forgiveness of sanctification, the the forgiveness of of restoring relationships that have been breached or damaged by sin. It's interesting as well, just making some general observations here, that the request in verse 12 for pardon is the only request of the six that gets further attention in the prayer, in the immediate context of the prayer. There's an explanation included. You can see it in verse 14. It begins with the word for, and that gives us reason, some reasons for the request. So that tells me that that this is an important topic. This topic of forgiveness is not a small matter. In fact, Jesus thought it was so important that that immediately after giving this prayer, he includes this additional instruction in verses 14 and 15 concerning the topic of parental forgiveness. So it's important. It's important that we understand it. It's important that we practice it as part of the community of believers. Now, in studying for this message, I, I ran across a quote that I, that I liked, and I, I want to put that up there for you. It's a quote by a very fine commentator, Leon Morris, in his commentary on Matthew. And, and he writes the following, in 2628, of Matthew, and I reproduce that there for you. This is my blood of the covenant, Jesus said in 2628, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Jesus says that on the night of his betrayal. So Morris says in 2628, Jesus will place forgiveness of sins at the heart of his mission. But if the disciple community which results from that mission is to be and to function as a community of the forgiven, its members cannot themselves begrudge forgiveness to others. I thought he captured, really, the the heart of this passage. We are the community of the forgiven. And because that is true, because this community has been created by God through His forgiveness in Jesus Christ, that we must be a forgiving people. And we must pray with regard to the topic of relational forgiveness. So with all of that as some background, let's, uh, let's put a little roadmap of where we're going. There are two facets this morning I want to look at, two facets of forgiveness that we must embrace so that we will both pray and function as a community of the forgiven. Okay, so two facets of forgiveness this morning that we want to 
look at, and we have to embrace these facets, both of them, so that we'll pray and function together as a community of the forgiven. So are you ready? Facet number one. In verse 12, number one, we have ongoing, unmet moral obligations to God. We have ongoing, unmet moral obligations to God. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice verse 12 begins with the word and, and this is just another observation, I think, that's very helpful for us here. It begins with the word and. Notice also that verse 13, I didn't read it for you, but also verse 13, notice, begins with the word and. So what that indicates to us is that there is some sort of a tie between these verses. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts and do not lead us into temptation. So Jesus is tying together the three requests, and I think by doing that, he is indicating that all three of them, not just the need for daily provision of food, but the need for daily ongoing forgiveness of sin and the need for daily ongoing protection from evil is a requirement, a necessity for the child of God. It is an ongoing, and that's why I've phrased that first facet this way, it's an ongoing unmet moral obligation. It is an ongoing need that we all have. Now, it's an interesting word that Jesus chooses here, forgive us our debts. An interesting word. This, uh, this Greek word here that is translated as debts normally speaks of financial obligations. That's what it normally speaks of, is financial obligations. And, and so to forgive one's financial obligation would be to, to release somebody from the legal liability to pay back the monies they owe, right? But that's really not what Jesus is talking about. He's not speaking about, forgive us our credit card bills, okay? He's speaking about something far more profound than that. The word can also be used and is used here to speak of a moral obligation or a, or a moral debt. There were some, some Jewish writers that would refer to our obligations to God that way, is that we had a debt to God or an obligation to God. And so what it means to, to ask to be forgiven or pardoned is to be released from the consequences that are deserved by our failure to live up to the moral obligations that we have. Jesus is instructing the community of disciples, and by extension, that means us, to regularly, corporately petition God to forgive us, to release us from our unmet and ongoing moral obligations to Him that we have failed to meet. Now, the idea of a moral obligation uh, with the, uh, appears with this word elsewhere in the New Testament, or at least related words to, to the Greek word translated debts here. So, for example, and I've got these for you. We won't turn. You just look at them. Matthew 23 and verse 16. Jesus says there, whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. So you see it translated exactly that way. Romans chapter 13 and verse 7, render to all what is due them, Paul says. And he begins to speak first about money obligations, but then he goes on to say, honor to whom honor is due. 
That's a moral obligation. Honor to whom honor. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul uses a related form of the word there, and he says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. Now there he's speaking about his conjugal obligations to his wife, a moral obligation. So the word can be and is used, at least in its cognate form, to speak of moral obligations, and that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He's not referring to our money debts He is referring to our unmet moral obligations to God. Unmet, ongoing, moral obligations to God. Well, what what, what are they? What kind of moral obligations as a child of God do I have to my heavenly Father? Well, the list could be, you know, a million miles long. But let me just suggest a few to get the juices flowing for you to think about. Honesty is one that came to my mind. We have an ongoing moral obligation to reflect the character of God with regard to honesty. We are to be an honest people. And the truth of the matter is is that we're not always honest. We shade the truth at times, and sometimes we tell outright lies. That creates a moral obligation to our Heavenly Father. Integrity is another one closely related to honesty. We have, a, we have a moral obligation to live as people of integrity in the world because we're Christians. And yet again, there are times when we fall short, either, either through weakness or, or, or something comes upon us and, and catches us unaware, and in a moment of time we do not act in a way with integrity. We create this unmet obligation. We'll get down the list. I'm not going to try to elaborate on each one, but I'll just give you a few to get you thinking. I'm sure you could add to it. So honesty, integrity, the word purity comes to my mind. There's an obligation for purity. Submission is another one. We are to live lives of submission. Certainly patience would be another moral obligation that we would have as a child of God. Faithfulness, another one that comes across. Humility would be another one. Love, we have an obligation to love, right? We have been loved first. We have an obligation to love, not just God, but others. We don't always do that. Forgiveness, and that's right here in this context. There's a moral obligation to forgive because you've been forgiven. We have a moral obligation to worship our Creator, not just Sunday morning when we gather together, but throughout the week as we live our lives or to live lives of worship. Sacrifice would be another moral obligation that we would have to our Heavenly Father, and the list could go on and on. Now, we have to acknowledge, when we really sort of think about it, and you don't have to think too hard, is that we don't always reflect the character of God in our lives. Isn't that true? We just, we, you know, we don't live up to our best intentions, So we fall short, and we fall short often, and we fall short in various ways. We recognize that we're not perfect, right? That's pretty straightforward, right? We're not perfect. problem is, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oops. So no man is perfect. We'll admit that. Then we sort of think that that covers it and we can walk away. But actually, it's more profound than that. The statement, no man is perfect, carries with it some very serious moral implications. 
But we recognize we're, we fall short, often fall short of the, the standards in terms of actions and activities that a citizen of the kingdom of God should have. We don't live like citizens all the time. Therefore, we are in constant need of a restoration of of parental forgiveness, a restoration of the relationship through parental forgiveness. We, We need to restore our fellowship with God, and the means to restore that fellowship is through confession and forgiveness. Confession and forgiveness. Let me see if perhaps I can illustrate this a little bit. When I was a wee lad, uh, back uh, a while ago, my, uh, my father was, uh, was and is a very understanding man, and he said to me as a young man, he said, uh, Son, I know you are going to break windows. Kind of an interesting thing for a father to say to his son, isn't it? My dad was an athlete, far better athlete than I've ever accomplished. But anyway, he understood that, that in the pursuit of athletic endeavor, it's inevitable that a young man will break windows. And so he said to me, I know that you're going to break windows, and uh, here's how we're going to handle this. You're going to come to me, and you're going to confess to me that you are the one who broke the window. And then I am going to give, I have this gigantic box of various uh, sized pieces of glass, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how to replace the broken window, how to take out the broken glass and to clean out the frame and then to put a new piece of glass in and cut it if you have to and to glaze it. And that's going to be the consequences for your breaking the window. Now, if you break the window doing something you're not supposed to be doing, there will be consequences related to that, Okay? <laughs> But the breaking of the window, this is how we're going to handle it. With this one requirement, and that is that you come and you confess, and I will forgive you. Now, that sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? And generally speaking, it was, but there were times when I found it hard to come and confess. Dad, I broke the window. And the reason I found it hard to confess was because I broke the window doing something stupid or or something that I shouldn't have been doing. And it was kind of owning up to that reality of it that, made it sometimes what I would rather that uh, he thought somebody else broke the window. You know, gee, Dad, I don't know, maybe the neighbors did it with a BB gun. Um, no, son. No, it's your BB gun that broke the window. <laughs> anyway, so perhaps that just provides a little, a little color there, right? So if I would not come and confess, then the relationship with my father was disrupted. And I knew it. But if I would come to him and I would say, Dad, I broke the window. How did you break the window, son? Well, I was hitting a tennis ball against the side of the house, and everything was going great until I tried to really, you know, hit it hard, and I kind of hooked it and went through the window. If I could confess that, then the relationship would be restored and I'd fix the window. But if I wouldn't, there was a breach in the relationship. That's kind of what's going on here. As children of our Heavenly Father, Jesus is instructing us to plead with our Father for the pardon associate, or pardon necessary for our failure to meet His moral obligations. Just come to Him and confess to Him 
God, I blew it today. I blew it today. In that moment of time, Lord, I, I, I lied. I lied. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And then, of course, you would need to go to the person you lied to and seek their forgiveness as well, right? You still got to fix the window. Now, we look at this verse here, verse 12, forgive us our debts. And we're kind of, we're, we're all right with that. We, we kind of get that. But then notice the qualifier. You see the word as? As we also have forgiven our debtors. Ugh. Right? Ugh. Oy vey, they would say. Right? Yiddish. <laughs> it's this little Greek particle. Translated here, as. Hos is the, is the Greek particle. It's a comparative particle. What it means is, is that it marks the manner in which something is to be done. Now, there's, a, there's another more intensive particle, kathos, which is not used here, and that means just like or exactly like or exactly as. The particle Jesus used here is, is a word that speaks of correspondence correspondence. So Jesus says, forgive us our debts, O God, in a corresponding way as we also have forgiven our debtors. He's not instructing us to to limit our plea to God for forgiveness based on our own forgiveness. If he did, we'd be in trouble, serious trouble. So he's, he's just saying here that, that the way we, we, we plead out to God for forgiveness should correspond to the way that we are forgiving other people. There needs to be a correspondence here. We are forgiven. We need to be a forgiving people. That's the correspondence. Now, the Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he says there, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as, and there he uses the intensive uh, particle, kathos, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So there Paul is saying that the kind of forgiveness we should be extending to one another should be exactly like the way we have been forgiven by Christ, which is full and complete the difference between what Paul's saying and what Jesus is saying is Paul says that's the standard. That's what we're going to be going after. That's what the Spirit actually uh, would enable you to do if you will yield yourself to Him. Jesus recognizes, I think, the, the weakness that we all have. And so the standard is not put on us at that intense level. That our plea to forgiveness is not tied exactly to the way we forgive other people. And you know what? That's a really good thing. Because if, if God tied them exactly together, we would all be in serious trouble. Serious trouble. So the first facet he gives us here in verse 12 is that we have ongoing unmet moral obligations to God. The second facet of forgiveness is in verses 14 and 15. And we've kind of begun to move into that, and that is that God's forgiveness is tied to ours. God's forgiveness is tied to ours. Again, let me remind you, we're talking about 
parental forgiveness, not judicial forgiveness. But God's forgiveness is tied to ours. Verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Excuse me. So Jesus indicates here that the reason for praying, according to verse 12, lies in the fact that we are forgiven people. We are a forgiven people who are to forgive. To forgive others is, is an act of, of grace-motivated obedience to our Heavenly Father, and it pleases Him. It pleases Him when we do that. And it ensures our uninterrupted fellowship with Him. If you forgive others, your Father will also forgive you. If you refuse to forgive others, you will have an unmet moral obligation to your Father, which will disrupt your fellowship with Him. When we forgive others horizontally, we imitate God, our Father. When we do that, we can, we can rest assured in His loving forgiveness of us. Conversely, verse 15, But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's a pretty serious verse. That's a pretty serious verse, right? He says, in contrast to to those that imitate their father by being a, a, a willing forgiver, lie those children of God, don't lose sight of that, Lie those children of God who, who do not forgive. They refuse to forgive. They refuse to act according to their new nature in Christ. Instead, they hang on to their old nature. They nurse grudges. People who have wronged them, they hang on to it. The result of, of imbibing this kind of relational Poison is that the toxicity of it spreads everywhere. You can't contain the outbreak. It not just poisons the relationship between you and the person to whom you are bearing the grudge, but its toxicity fills you and it poisons the relationship with your heavenly Father. You can't keep it contained. You can't box it in. You can't have this dark closet in your life of unforgiveness, and maintain an open, unhindered relational fellowship with your Heavenly Father. It affects things. If anyone says, I'll never forgive you, that person is not humbly aware of their own sins. They're only vengefully aware of yours. They should never be on the lips of a Christian. I'll never forgive that. Those words should never be voiced by a Christian, by a child of God, by one who has known the forgiveness of God. It's a serious statement Jesus makes here, isn't it? He says our lack of of forgiveness inhibits God's forgiveness of us. That the, the breach in the relationship horizontally creates a breach in the relationship vertically. And by the way, God will not allow this to continue. God loves you. 
You are His child today by faith in Christ. God loves you, and He will not allow you to continue to live in the backwash of sin. And certainly not in the backwash of a a life of unforgiveness. And so He will discipline you. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 10 says exactly that. As a loving father, God disciplines for the purpose of bringing about holiness in his children. God will bring into your life temporal punishments necessary to bring you to a place of repentance and confession. God will break you. It is much easier, believe me, to humble your heart before God, confess your sin, and receive the restoration that He is ever ready to give. Ever ready to give. Listen, you you cannot walk in fellowship with God if you refuse to forgive other people. It cannot be. So this is a serious thing. Serious thing. We are a community of the forgiven. We are a forgiven people. We must live as a forgiven people. What does that look like? What does it look like? What I'd like to do is take some time here and and to speak about it in perhaps a more practical way, if I can, about praying and living as a community of the forgiven. That's what I want to do with the times left to us. Talk about how do we apply the, this message. It's a message of great hope. I mean, there's a seriousness to it, to be sure. But there's a message of great hope. How do we apply it? I have eight steps of application. How's that? So let's try that. Number one, confessing. It all begins here. Number one, it begins with confession. Corporate confession. Remember, this, this prayer, we've, we've noted this more than one time. This is, a, this is a public prayer. This is a prayer to be voiced by the community of believers. Our Father, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. So it's a corporate approach. It's certainly a private approach as well, but it's also a corporate approach. So it's confessing our sin corporately, corporately, with a focus upon our failure to live in accordance with God's moral obligations upon our lives. So it's to confess publicly and corporately that we have not lived up to what God has every right to expect of us. We have failed. We have fallen short. Let me turn you to uh, Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18 and verse 21. I'm going to read it through to the end of the chapter. I'm not going to make a lot of comments on it, but it, it's a parable that Jesus gives with regard to forgiveness, and it speaks to the same basic idea. The point of the parable is the the relative size of obligations. The obligation that we owe to God relative to the size of the obligation that anyone else owes to us. 
Verse 21. And Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter, you are so gracious. Actually, he's more gracious than most of us. Truth be told, right? Seven, that's a lot. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. There's no limit. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, let me just insert a parenthetical here for you. The annual tax revenue of Palestine was 900 talents of gold. 10,000 talents. Okay? This is a, this is a mega sum. <laughs> it's a mega sum. Again, it's speaking in hyperbole. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay? A couple of months' wages. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So this fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Relative to what God has forgiven us, Anything someone else owes us is insignificant in comparison. So we begin by confessing. Confessing our obligations that are unmet to God. Confessing our sin to one another. Secondly, rejoicing. Confessing and then rejoicing. Rejoicing in our status as God's children. Rejoicing in our uninhibited access to the God of the universe through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's something to rejoice in. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Beloved, that's us. We are the blessed ones. We are the ones whose sin has been forgiven. It has been covered over. It is not taken into account. We have been set free eternally through justification, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So rejoice in that reality that you are a child of God by faith in Christ. Third, overlooking. 
overlooking. Overlooking petty offenses of other people. How do we pray? How do we live as a community of the forgiven? We do so by overlooking petty offenses. 1 Peter 4.8 Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Let it go. Love the person and let it go. Every single sin does not need to be confronted. May God deliver us from an attitude like that, right? Who wants to live in a in a situation where every single picayune transgression is confronted, right? The recipe for a relational disaster. So overlook it. Overlook it. Let love cover it over. Four, requesting. So we have confessing, we have rejoicing, we have overlooking. Now we have requesting. Requesting that that God will bring to our minds any particular relationship that needs to be restored or any way that we have failed to meet His moral obligations that needs to be confessed. This is done both corporately and privately. Just asking God, God, please reveal to me, please bring to my mind, help me to remember where I have sinned. Oh God, help me to to know if if I've offended somebody, oh Lord, let me know that somehow. Five, remembering. Remembering. This is one of the hard ones, by the way. Remembering. Remembering that God has already granted to you the grace necessary to forgive anyone. God has already given you. We do not need to to pray. In fact, we should not pray. God, grant me grace to forgive. God has already granted the grace to forgive. What we need to do is access the grace that has been already given in Christ. Let me take you over to Luke 17. Luke 17. Beginning in verse 3. Luke 17, beginning in verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith, O Lord. We don't have enough faith to do that. We don't have enough faith to to be able to forgive someone like that. We need some spiritual resource that that we don't have yet, so, so please give it to us. Verse 6, the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, 
having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat. Gee, you worked hard today. Come on in, sit down, I've made supper for you. Verse 8, but will he not say to his slave or say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Wow. I thought forgiven people made me, you know, kind of stand up and stand forward, right? Be recognized. Jesus says, listen, to forgive others... You're just doing what's expected of you. And you don't need more resources, by the way. It only takes a mustard seed. You got everything you need. If you're a child of God this morning, you have everything you need. You just need to depend upon the Spirit of God, the grace that He has already given you, and then you need to be obedient. Just go and be reconciled to that man or that woman. And when you do, God's just going to say, you're doing what you're supposed to do. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. That leads us to number six, going. Going. Go to any individual that you know has something against you. Go in accordance with Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23 covered this some time ago. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Jesus says, if you, if you know somebody has something against you, if you know you're, you're unreconciled to somebody, then go to that person and be reconciled. But give me faith, O Lord, to do this. No, 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 wait a minute. I already gave you that. Just go do it. Just do it. Seven. Releasing. You probably noticed by now I've got all these as participles, right? Wasn't that hard either. Releasing. Releasing the person you have forgiven, releasing the person that you have forgiven so that you consciously decide not to hold this against them any longer. Let it go. Let it go. And when you do, you show yourself to be a child of your heavenly Father. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 The Lord says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God does not forget our sins. God chooses not to remember them against us. He releases us from them. 
You cannot forgive someone fully whom you have not released. Forgiveness is a promise not to hold that against them any longer. Now leads to number eight, restoring. Restore relationships if at all possible. If at all possible. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes it's not possible. But we should only conclude it's not possible to be at peace with this person when we have exhausted every single opportunity to be reconciled to them. This is radical stuff. People who live like this stand out in the world. People who live like this, by the way, also get taken advantage of in the world. But that's okay because they've already placed the supreme wager. They're already betting everything. That life doesn't consist of the here and now. That it is in the life to come. The true happiness, true joy can be found. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul, right? Beloved, if we were to live like this, if we were to pray like this, we would turn this world upside down. The power to do it has already been given us in Christ. Maybe For someone here, though, this morning, they do not yet know Christ. They know about Him, but they do not know Him. They know what He came and did, but they haven't personalized it. It remains out there. It remains a story or or even something that they would affirm as true never personalized. Listen, if that's you this morning, if if you're that person who says, I I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I I believe that Jesus came and and died in order to take away the sins of the the world. I I believe that He rose again on the third day. I believe that that God is is going to judge people for their sin. And I I believe that those who who do not believe in Christ and have not placed their faith in Christ are, are going to go to hell. I believe all of that. But I haven't never personalized it. I just believe it in a general way. Maybe you've been raised in a Christian home where you've been taught this, this truth your whole life. But it's still something outside of you. It's still, it's still something out there, not here. And I plead with you this morning to to give yourself to Christ. Call out to Christ. Believe for you that He died in your place. And it is only by your personal faith relationship with Him that you will benefit from what He has done. You can do this right now 
right where you are. Just close your eyes. Call out to Jesus. And he will save you. Let me pray. Our Father, I ask right now that you would move in the heart of that person here this morning who has yet to come to Christ as their own personal Savior. They believe things about Him, but they have not trusted Him. They're still relying upon their own efforts, their own relative goodness, mistakenly thinking that somehow, at the end of it all, that there'll be some great cosmic balance in which the good they have done will outweigh the bad. O Lord, deliver them from this fallacy. Deliver them from this confusion. Deliver them from this self-righteous attitude. Humble their hearts even now. Let them call out to Jesus to save them right now. Our Father, we as a people confess our sin. We are your children because Christ has died for each and every one of us. And yet, our Father, we confess that we have not lived up this past week to our status as children. We have sinned against you and each other in a multitude of ways. Faithless deeds, perverse and lustful thoughts, hearts that have longed after things of this world, anxiety and worry, anger and bitterness, hurtful and hateful words, a mute and silent tongue when opportunity to speak for Christ presented itself. O Lord, these and many, many more, we ask You to forgive us, to pardon us for Jesus' sake. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Enable us to enjoy that unhindered access, father and child. Cleanse us. Stand us back on our feet energize us anew, send us out into this world to live for the glory of Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. God bless you, beloved.